Okay, we are on um, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, a very familiar story, but hopefully as you dug into it, you realized maybe you weren't as familiar as you thought you were. Did, did you all have that experience? Did several people have that experience? It was a long chapter, but it wasn't particularly difficult because you're reading primarily narrative and the, and the story of what's going on between all these people in this scene. So let's, let's just put ourselves in the scene. Who are the main characters? Well, there's more than that. Okay, so we have, we have David, and we have Goliath. Who else? Okay, Saul. Thank you. God. The men of Israel. Okay, so kind of over here with Saul are the, um, the Israelites. Who's with Goliath? And with Goliath are the Philistines. So paint the picture for me. What's going on here? There's a war, and it's between whom and whom? Okay, so there's a battle going on between the Israelites and the Philistines. And did you get kind of a visual of where they are? Where are they? You've been there? Okay, describe it. You did? You picked up some stones there? Okay, so I is the it's the is the valley pretty um, wide? Okay, so it is wide. But did you see kind of where the Philistines would be up on one mountainside and the Israelites would be up on another mountainside? Okay, so you you pretty much have you kind of a I don't know if this a mountainside and a mountainside and there's the valley here, which from what I read it was like it was a wadi, which would be. Um, when it, the rains came, it would flood. It'd be like a river. Yeah, but, it was dry. Hmm? It was dry when you're there, but when, there, when it's the dry period, it's just a, a, a rocky, stony valley. So that's where they were. And up on one side are the Israelites, and up on the other side are the Philistines. So they're arrayed in battle, but what's going on? Are they, are they really fighting? No. No, no. They're what? <laughs> they line up and, and shout at each other. So, so it's really kind of funny. So what happens? Well, is it because of Goliath? They're having a standoff, and, and because of the standoff, what happens? Do y'all see it? What? The Israelites were hesitant, they said. Well, okay, yeah, they are afraid. They're afraid of Goliath, but what is Goliath? How is he described? He's what, a champion? He's a champion. Does anybody know what a champion is? No? Okay, essentially what's happening here, because, this is what I read, because of the terrain and the, and the fact that they're up on the different mountainsides, they really don't want to fight each other. They, they don't want to do it. But they are arrayed in battle, and someone's got to go fight. So what they do is they send out the champion, which is a representative of the army. So it's like representative warfare. I'll send out my best and my brightest, and you send out your best and your brightest, and they'll fight each other. And whoever wins, then that's, that's the winner of the army. So that's what's going on here. I'm not sure I've studied this before, and I'm not sure I really understood that before. Why they were all so afraid of him, because only one was going to go up against him. Not the whole army. Only one person. Does that make more sense? Mm -hmm. what, what was happening here? Yes, June. They, what I read, it was a very common practice. It was a very common practice. Oh, Yes, it was a. It was not an unusual battle strategy. Yeah, that they would do something like this: send the representative in the battle so that they all didn't have to fight. And and that's why you see him coming out. Because what does he say? That's your question number four. He issues a challenge to them, 
and he specifically says some things to them. And what does he say to them? Goliath. He tells them to choose one guy to fight. He says what, Rachel? If I defeat your guy, then we'll be your slaves, and then vice versa. If I defeat yours, then yours. Yes, and did you hear her words she used? Say it again, slaves. Because it says servants, but it means slaves. And essentially, remember, when you conquered a pig, when we have war now and someone wins, everybody then just goes home and one was the winner and one was the loser. No, you took the spoils, including the people, and you took them back with you and they were now your slaves. That's what happened later on in the history of Israel. When the northern kingdom falls to Assyria, they become serious, serious subjects. When the southern kingdom, Judah, falls to Babylon, they become Babylon subjects. They're, they're essentially slaves. They do not have their freedom anymore. These people now rule over them. You don't just go home and you lost the war. Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's what's at stake. Whoever wins will be the victor and take the other, the other nationality in as their people, and they'll be their servants, their slaves. Okay, so he stands up there and he says, choose a man for yourself, let him come down to me. So he's basically volunteered to be the representative in the standoff. And whoever can fight against me and kill me, then you'll be, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants. What else does he say? It's very important. I I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Who, what is he challenging? Does anybody know what the mindset in this day was when two armies went against each other? Whoever has the biggest, mightiest, greatest God really is that God who wins. So it's essentially, that, that's what they did. My God is greater than yours. Gods were more territorial in their mindset. So there's the God of the Philistines, not only of those people, but in this area. And there's the gods of these people over here. And there's the gods of Israel over here. And if I am victorious in the battle, that it means my God, which I believe the Philistines' God was Dagon, then my God is greater than your God, Yahweh. So that, that's a lot of what's at stake here. Do you all see that? Okay. Yes, Alex. Uh, just a question. Um, yeah. Did Dagon be the, the only one? Did they only have one? Um, more that's a good question. I would say the Philistines probably had more than one. Yeah. You know, mo- most of the nations had more than one god. They might have had one kind of primary god, and theirs would have been Dagon. Goliath actually says that. He does say that. When he says something is God's shield. Yes, he's, yeah, God's, he does say that. Yes, he does. Yeah. So how does Israel respond? They're, they're scared, aren't they? Yeah. They're, they're scared. What's another word that describes them? Dismayed. Where's Saul? Who is Saul? Where is he in all this? He's there. Yeah, he's 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 scared and dismayed. So here here he is. He's the king of Israel, God's appointed one. Even though in the previous chapter, if you went back and read First Samuel 16, David has been selected as the next king and has God's anointing. He does not have God's timing to be king yet. Saul is still king. But he is not acting very kingly, is he? Not at all. He is coward and scared and dismayed along with the rest of the Israelites. Right there. He is old. It does say in there that he's getting old. When you're old. Uh, Genevieve's going to disagree with you. <laughs> yeah. She's going to disagree, right? Okay. Do you want to make any other comment? Well, my, my comment is what Saul should be doing. He should be knowing that God 
is his God, the living, true God on his side. That's why when you're old, you still aren't afraid. <laughs> so when, when we move into question five, what dominated Israel's attention? What, dominate, what is dominating their attention? What are they seeing? Okay, because he's, he's, he's huge, and he's tall, and he's got high-tech armor. Okay. He's got he's got a lot he's got that huge spear. What else about him? I read different things that he could he could have been anywhere from six foot something to nine foot something. Yeah. Yeah, he's like nine feet tall. He is, he is an imposing figure. And I read other accounts, and I don't remember what they said, and I didn't write it down, how much this coat of mail he has weighs. Like 125 pounds. Some of you in here don't even weigh 125 pounds. So it would be like picking you up and wearing you. Yeah, he, and that's just the coat of mail. That's not the, the spear and the, uh, the helmet and things like that. He's got a bronze helmet. What else about him? Yeah, he had a, um, a shield bearer that went before him. Okay, something else about him. He is conceited. He, I like that word, he, I, and I'm going to say confident, conceitedly confident. They were, they were listening to Goliath rather than God. He is very confident. He has strong self-esteem. He knows he's big. He knows he's strong. He knows he can defeat almost any man that would come up against him. And so he's using that to all of his advantage. So much so that what do we find him doing for how long? He came down morning and night for 40 days. A.M. and P.M. for 40 days. He does, he taunts, doesn't he? For 40 days in the morning and in the evening, he comes out and says, Choose you a man to come against me. I defy the, uh, the, the, the Israelites. Come and fight against me because he is so confident. If I, any money, anybody you would send up against me, I can beat them and win. I've got this, right? So their, their whole focus is on that because what do they believe? It's really kind of funny. If you think about it, what do they believe? They believe, what does he also say to them? Some strong language he uses. Did you notice? I'll feed you to the birds. <laughs> That's what's funny. I wrote this down from one on. They believed if they went up against him that they would be on their own and they'd end up as bird feed. That's, that's what, where they would be. They would end up as bird feed. The birds would eat them. Yeah. Who was over here saying? With all his armor... What weapon would they have had that could possibly, I mean, none of their spears, their swords, their anything could have gotten through all this heavy armor. So David got him the one place he didn't. David got him the one place. It would have been brute force or, go ahead. I was just thinking about how terrifying it would be to be the one responsible for your entire, all the Israelites being captured. Like, that's a lot of weight on a person to try to say, if I lose, I lose my whole country. Yeah, it reminds me of watching a football game, you know, and the score is 34 to 35, and the, and the poor little kicker's doing the field goal. <laughs> and if he misses, the whole game is lost, and 40,000 people in the stands, and all, I mean, the pressure on those young men to kick that ball and hit it right in between those two goalposts is kind of, yeah, that's a good point, exactly. Other thoughts? Yeah. So they're looking at that, and the, he's, he's frightening. He's very frightening. 
What are they lacking? What are they lacking over here? There, there, somebody said a little bit earlier. Faith. Faith. They have, they have, they are lacking faith. So they have no faith. So who shows up on the scene? Yeah. David shows up. But before we go to that, let's think about this. Why, why are they even fighting the Philistines? Yes. They, did you see that? You had some verses on number seven. They're, and here's something else that's interesting. They are lined up in the territory that belonged to Judah. That's where they are. Territory that God had clearly said, this is yours. So look, think timeline again. We've already had the period of Joshua and Judges before we get to 1 Samuel. Joshua, after the 40 years in the wilderness, Joshua leads them in. You know, the first battle, Jericho, which they didn't stand a chance of winning, and yet God is, um, causes victory over Jericho. And you, we study through Joshua, there, there is victory after victory after victory. And why is there victory? What do these verses say in Deuteronomy and in Joshua? Why are they able to be victorious? God goes before them, and what does he say? In, in your own words, what does he say to them as he says, be strong, be courageous, because what? The Lord is with you. Who's? I will deliver them into your hand. You will be victorious. The, the Lord will curse your enemies who rise against you to be bef defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. You are guaranteed victory. Regardless of what the enemy looks like, you are guaranteed victory over them. And Joshua, it does say, and obey the law. For only then will you succeed. Yes. So there is a little caveat. There. there is a little caveat. They are under the law, which is what we saw in Exodus. And there are blessings and cursings under the law. Obey me, keep the law, and part of the blessings are you will be victorious over your enemies, but go after other gods and worship them, and I will dismay you before your enemies, and I will allow them to defeat you. So there is a caveat, absolutely. Yes, Lynn? How long has Joshua been dead at this point? I should know that. I kept thinking, uh, where's Joshua? How long has he been gone? I don't know the uh, years, but he's been gone a while. Because we've had, has it been 400 years? She says 400 years. Oh, yeah, it's been a long time because you've got Joshua and then you've got Judges. The period of the Judges is a long time. It's a long period. So they don't even have that as a, they can't even, they don't remember that as an example. It's like just going farther back than George Washington. Yes, yes. No, they don't. That's a, that's a good point. Yes, because you've got Joshua where they're victorious, and they get into the land, and they begin to settle it. Okay, those of you all that, are, what, a year or two ago we did Judges, what do you remember about Judges? At the very beginning, what happened? Yeah, but what did they fail to do? Yes, if you go to the first chapter of Judges, there are several references. They did not drive them out. They did not drive them out. So they didn't do, when, when God and Joshua had sent them in, he'd said, drive them out. Do completely drive any of the inhabitants out of the land, but consistently they failed to completely drive them out. So that answers the question why they are even still fighting the Philistines. And also in Joshua, you hear that repeated key phrase, they did what was right in their own eyes. Anybody remember the cycle that was going on in Judges? And it was, I think you're right, I think it was about four, at least 400 years, the period of the judges. Do you remember the cycle? What did they do? What was that cycle in judges? They obeyed and then they rebelled or they rebelled or just kind of were apathetic. Oh, they were worse than apathetic. <laughs> Way worse than that. Yeah, they did. They did evil, which was primarily they worship other gods. 
They did evil, and as a result of their doing evil, what happened? They were oppressed, always by some invading country that oppressed them, the Philistines, the Midianites, whoever it was that got allowed to come in. They would be oppressed for a period of time, and what would they do? They would cry out. Who heard them? Okay, so God would hear him, and he would do what? He'd send a a judge who was essentially a deliverer. They'd have a period of peace, and then what? Okay. And around and around we go. And that, that is the repeated pattern. That's judges in a nutshell. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God sent someone to oppress them, which is what he had said he would do in the curses of the Old Covenant. They would cry out under the oppression. He would raise up a judge who would deliver them, usually militarily, and then they would go have a period of peace and go back and be in the same pattern. The difference is, as they spiraled, they spiraled further, deeper and deeper and deeper in the book into more and more um, abhorrent practices, immorality, um, intense idol worship. So, yes. So Samuel, actually Samuel is the last judge before they demand, the people say, we want a king. We want a king. We want to look like everybody else. Everybody else around us has a king. It's not enough for us to just have God over us. We want, we want a king like everybody else. And God says to Samuel, that's fine. Give him a king. And they appoint Saul. So that's, that's really where we are in the history. Does that answer your question, Lynn? It's been a long, long time since Joshua. And they've come out of an incredibly dark dark period of time from the judges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is. You know, Jim said something uh, really interesting in a sermon um, a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you all caught it, and I can't remember which which text he was in, but he said, sometimes we forget we turned the page and a hundred years have gone by. You know, we've just flicked the page and we've lost total um, grasp of how much time has has occurred in between events. So it is, uh, that's why I like going back into the Old Testament periodically and just kind of remembering here's how these things were and also remembering it, don't be too judgmental of these people. They didn't even have, they didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit in them, and they didn't have this to rely on every day. Do you know how the word was shared with them? Like how the, the Torah was shared? Like was it the priest? The priest, and it, it was all oral, very much oral. So it was their responsibility to like go sit and listen. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that they got a whole lot of it, to be honest with you. Not, not in the way like we think of, where we're coming into a Bible study every week and we're going to church on Sunday, and certainly not, you know, the Internet. You can put something on all day, every day. I mean, they're getting little snippets, really. So, cut them some slag. Other thoughts? Okay. So they shouldn't have even been fighting the Philistines. Had, had the, the nation of Israel done what God had commanded them and driven the Philistines out, they wouldn't have even been here. But they are here, and they are, they are fighting them. So what, what is, we kind of talked about it, but let's talk about it a little bit deeper. What is at stake here? Okay, okay, because this is... If, if we're looking at this, this, this is the whole picture of what's going on. I like what one author said, and I like what you said, Scott, who's the char- one of the main characters is God. I like what this one guy said. He said, this is God's divine stage. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel 17. And it is, it's God's reputation at stake. Anything else? The hearts of the Israelites? So, like, they would have been left in fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
but it but it's God it's God's reputation it's his character it's his name because while we name you know our names to us are just something pretty or we just like the sound of it or it maybe it's a family name a name was attached to who you were when they named people in this time. So God's name, Yahweh, is who he is. What does he say in Exodus? I am that I am, Yahweh. I am the self-existent one. My name, Yahweh, because that's when you see Lord here, all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, it's Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. So what's at stake is the very character and reputation of who he is. Is this is his divine stage where this is all being played out? Mm-hmm. Okay, so David shows up, and what happens? Why is David there? Mm-hmm. And why is he taking food to his brothers? Yes, because his dad is old, and his dad wants to be sure the brothers are okay, so takes some food to them. He also takes some cheese for the commanding, for the commanders, and, and kind of go see how everything is going and come back and report to me. How well is David received when he shows up by his brothers? What are you doing here? What's ironic about what they say to him? Your, your heart's in the wrong place. We know you. We know why you're here. And your heart's in the wrong place, and that's why you're here. But when David shows up, what's he hear? What does he see, and what does he hear? He, yes, did you all see that? I think it's in verse 23. And David heard him. He heard him. And how does that affect David? And in fact, he says in 26, he says to the men, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And look at that phrase, and takes away the reproach of Israel. I mean, I just circled that. For who is, what is he calling? Who is this what? Okay, we talked about circumcision a couple of weeks ago. Essentially, what's he saying when he calls him that? He what? Take him, he's unprotected. Yeah, he is not part of the covenant community. He is not one of God's chosen. He is not part of God's chosen people. Why are you letting this uncircumcised Philistine scare you and intimidate you? And better yet, why are you letting him taunt God the way he is doing that? Why are you letting him reproach Israel and in essence shame God? Yes, yes. Why are you letting him defy the armies of the living God? And I looked up that word. It means to defame, to expose, to taunt, to blaspheme. That's a strong word, blaspheme. Why are you allowing him to blaspheme the armies of the living God? Do you realize what's at stake here? So what is different? The people cowered in fear... They're looking at their circumstances, which is this huge giant of a man. David is not afraid. Why is David not afraid? Okay. Okay. So David has faith. He has been protected before. He has been protected before. In fact, when he says, well, I'll go fight him, Saul, Saul says, well, you can't. Why can't he? He's young. What else is he? 
Isn't he kind of small? He's just a shepherd. They were very low on the pecking order. He's the youngest of the sons. The sons don't even have much respect for him. But he, he's, when we say God protected him before, what does he use as his defense as, I can do this? Yeah, I am a shepherd, and my job is to protect those sheep at the cost of my life. And I've gone up against greater enemies than myself, a bear, a lion, and I've been able to defeat them with God's help to protect the sheep. So I know I can do this. But is, is it really, I know I can do it? What, what does David have? He has faith, but what else, what else does he? He has faith, he has history. And God already put his hand on David. Yes, God had already put his hand on David. Yes, so he knows he has God's backing, right? So he has God's backing. Yes, that's what I wanted you. That's the word I was looking for. He has a right perspective. Kept the main thing, the main thing, all way. I got stuck on that brother telling them he was evil and had a hard heart. I think a lot of us, me included, those kind of words, I would have liked. That would, I've been out of there. I guess I do. I guess there's something wrong with me. I just got inside my head swirling around and yeah. got stuck on that. What, with what the brother said. Yeah. yeah. Instead of in, 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 in David's lesson, just kept his forgiveness. Let that yes. go off his back like that water off dust back. Yes. Because mm-hmm. he focused on God. Because he had he had the right perspective. What else what else did he have? I don't know if y'all will get what I'm asking for right here. It is a right perspective, but what's giving him the right perspective? He knows who he is. He, he what? His identity wasn't in himself but in the Lord. Okay, so because of this right perspective, somebody else, somebody else said something over here. Okay, because of this right perspective, he had the right identity. He had a, a right heart toward God. Because what's said about David? Like your very last question, what's said about him? He has a he has a heart his uh, a heart after God. He is a man after my own. In fact, when he was chosen, when they lined up all the brothers and they kept looking for another one, another one, and what, what did Samuel say about him? Yeah, y'all look on the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart. He may look small and young to you, but I see someone who has a heart like mine, and that's going to be my anointed king. Norma? Uh, Holy Spirit always. The Spirit doesn't come and go on us. It's there. Now we can we can um, quench him by our sin or failure to obey, but he's always there. In the Old Testament economy, the Spirit came and went. They didn't always have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but that's a really good point. What, what verse was that? What verse was that, Norma? Uh, that was uh, chapter 16, verse uh, 13. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Yeah, probably should have put that in the lesson for y'all to look at, but I didn't. Okay, so the Spirit is on him. He has a right identity. He has a right heart. He has the right perspective. Here's what I'm looking for that he has that I, I, I'm just going to tell you. He has a right theology. Do you understand what I'm saying? What is theology? That's a big word. What does that mean? He has a right perspective, and he also has a right theology. He what? It's what you think about God. It's what you think about God. Theology is the study of God and the things of God and who God is. So he knows who God is. 
And he's not wavering in that. Yes, Jim? He, he was willing to put God first. God was the center of his world. Uh -huh. Where the Israelites still were back in the old thing of not obeying. Of not, yes. Just like they'd always done. You know, they would sin and do whatever and go back. They didn't obey God, but David did. Da yes, they were not obeying God, and David is, but I would say part of that is because he has the right perspective and the right theology. He has the right facts and truths about who God is, and he believes it has the right faith and the right perspective. He believes it with his whole heart. And that's a lot of what makes him a man after God's own heart and makes him stand up here as the only one here that's not afraid. Yes, when, um, Debbie. That I, I think that's where verse 20 is, it talks about, and he came to the encampment, David. Yes. He came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. Mm -hmm. And then over in verse 45, it talks about, this is how David, he knows God. He says, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Yes. So, yes. God of the armies. Yes. Yes. And that's interesting when he says, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. Did y'all notice that name, the Lord of hosts? Does anybody want to venture what that means? Just from the context? The Lord of Heavenly Armies. Yeah, it's kind of the Lord of the Heavenly Armies. It's it's a name for God. It depicts God as the mightiest warrior, as the all-powerful king, when it says the Lord of hosts. Yeah, it has military. That name has military overtones, as this is the one that will absolutely be victorious. Yes, Norma? Uh, that, that word theology uh, definition, I think, is study of the nature of God. Yeah, the study of the nature of God, and he uh -huh. understands uh -huh. the nature of God. Yeah. Yes. And in verse 37, where he said, the Lord who delivered me from the palm of the line and the palm of the hill and delivered me from the hand of the hill. And it made me think that sometimes, you know, he had a difficult life. Being a shepherd was, you know, really being responsible for the sheep and protection and everything. So, I mean, it's not an easy thing. And sometimes That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Here's an interesting. Here's an interesting quote. I wish I could take credit for it, but I love it. And Eugene Peterson actually said it in a book that um, I have by him, and he said, and you might want to write it down, but let me read it to you first. That David is the only person fully in touch with reality that day. Do you like that? David was the only person fully in touch with reality that day. Because he knew. He, he shows up with that right perspective, the right theology of the nature of God, the spirit on him, fully aware of his identity in his relationship with God, with a heart turned toward, I will defend the name of Yahweh and his reputation. No one is going to shame my God, and especially not in such a public arena. And I trust him so much that even though everyone else is looking at this giant who is taunting and does look undefeatable, I, he doesn't trust in himself. He trusts in God, that God will defend his own name against this because of what's happening on this divine stage. You know, and Saul still didn't get it. I mean, when he gave oh, his offer and everything like mm -hmm. that was going to be the thing that would do the trick. Yeah, I know. I, poor Saul. Yeah, so he, he stands up there and he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the uh, air. So you all are going to be bird feed. And to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I underlined that. 
and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into, did you notice he says, our hand, not my hand, our hand. So he comes forth as the champion on the side of the Israel life, the only one in touch with reality that day. How does he defeat Goliath? How does this play out? He ran quickly. He didn't. <laughs> and he did it. No fear. No fear. So Saul lets him go, doesn't he? And what does Saul offer him? Armor. Armor. Yeah. Yeah. David, does he put it on? And, and what does he decide after he puts it on? Nope. He's not used to it. He's not used to it. Can't test it. I mean, I cannot imagine. Has anybody ever been to London to the Tower and they have the exhibit of all the, the armor and the coat of mail and... I mean, this is really heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. You don't just put it on and, and go out if you don't know how to wear it and use it and aren't used to it and have the strength built up to fight with it on. Um, so he takes it off, and how, what does he do? He goes down to the brook, gathers up five stones, has a slingshot, and comes before Goliath. How does Goliath respond? He would. He laughs. Basically, he's like, I don't think so. I think he was insulted. He, he's what? Insulted. I've got two pair of glasses on, y'all. I can't believe someone hadn't said something to me. I've got two pair of glasses on the uh, Good grief. Uh, he th he's insulted, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I've been standing out here for 40 days, morning and evening, trying to get you to send out your strongest man, and this is what you send out? Really? Seriously, and not only that, he has no weapon, he has no armor at all. And yet, how does David defeat him? With a One stone, one stone, somehow he, he, he is able to sling that stone at one of the unexposed places and knock him out. And then go over and cut his head off. They're so brutal back then. And take his head into Jerusalem. And then, then the army is able to go and rout the Philistines and pursue them and run them off. And they are victorious that day because of what, what David had seen. So, wrapping up this story, what do you learn about man from this story? What do you learn about him? It's super easy to focus on the physical things you see in front of you. It's very easy, isn't it? It's very easy to focus on the physical or just the circumstances that look bigger, things that you can see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like David's brother, there's a lot of people who tear down those who are trying to do right uh -huh. um, to make themselves feel better. Right. To say, well, I know you're going out in faith, but I'm going to tear you down so that I don't look as bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. What else? God yes. remains faithful in the midst of unbelief. He does remain faithful in the midst of unbelief. That's something we learn about God. Exactly. Yes, Kim? Um, like there that day, who would we be? Who would we like to think we are? We'd like to think we're David. Who are we probably? Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're probably Israel if we were there. We'd like to think we're David, but we're Israel. Mm -hmm. What else do you learn about God or about man? always uses the most amazing things uh, to reveal himself. 
Now, I love it, you know, like Naaman, you go down and dip seven times. I mean, he always uses something that we would go just so opposite of us. Now, how are we like him? I don't know, sometimes it's like, how are we like him? Because he's so different, his nature. I don't know, he just fascinates me. I love it. Yes, John, I just finished reading a book called Isaac's Storm, which is the story of the uh, terrible hurricane. 't we have we have some friends you know what I thought about when I was doing the stories we have some friends that have a they have a ministry and they travel um, they're gone most of the year and they're either in in Russia or the what I call the stand countries around Russia or they're in Africa and but he has gone to the Middle East some and they were here this summer and they had a reception and Edmund went down we hadn't seen him in probably 10 years and when they lived here a long time ago, the wife and I were really good friends. And so I was excited to see Eleanor. And John was just talking about their ministry and different things that had happened. And they went to, um, I think it was Saudi Arabia not too long ago. And one thing John said is, he said it's very common for missionaries to lie on their visa what they're really going to be doing there. And that these are his words. Or... You put something else, like I'm going to be teaching English, but you're really going to evangelize. And he said, I won't do that. He is, he is like a David-type man. He really surprises me. And he said, I won't do that. I put on there, I'm, I'm a preacher, and I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he shows up in Saudi Arabia off the plane and hands them his little thing, and they look at him, and he said, no one would in their right mind do this. But he said, I'm going in in the name of God, or I'm not going in. And he tells this official that, and the official leaves and comes back, and he thinks, yeah, for sure I won't get in now. They're going to deny it. But he says, you know, I, he told him he was very impressed with him because he said all the other Christians come in and they don't say what they're really going to be doing. But we know what they're going to be doing. And they were so impressed that he just very boldly said it. They not only stamped and approved it, he went back and came back, and they put on there like a gold diplomatic seal where he can go in now for like, like seven years, no questions asked at all. And, and John's just one of those that just, God said, I'm going, I'm going, and I'm going on no pretenses at all. This is what I'm going to do. Now, if you know anything about Saudi Arabia, you just don't say that to them. I mean, my, our, my uh, brother-in-law and his wife lived there for six years. You did everything in secret, even though they were on a compound. You still did everything in secret because it's a very heavenly Muslim country that doesn't tolerate Christianity. But John just wasn't, he wasn't going to do it. It was really kind of a David Goliath-type moment, and it's because John has a strong theology of who God is, a perspective of what God is doing and God's kingdom work and that he's a player in it, but he also has the perspective if, if, because he'll go into some very, you know, he was in Nigeria this summer. He does not take his wife to Nigeria. It's not safe. And he doesn't feel safe there. But he feels called to go, and he goes, and he ministered at a conference with 300 ministers. Men come to be, he's like the minister to the ministers. And he said, if I'm killed, then so be it. 
then it's my time to go. And Eleanor will be fine. There will be people to take care of her. She will miss me, but we have family. Someone will take care of her. But he's so strong. He has this kind of, he is a physical man that I know, but really has, I think Jim does too, has that kind of mentality of I am so confident in who God is and, and I see, I don't see the circumstances. I see the divine stage. And that's, no matter how scary the circumstances are, I'm going to believe who God is in the divine stage and that, and that God has a part for me to play and I'm going to act on that. Now, I wish I were more like that. I'm not. So, it's really interesting. What about, as you studied this this week, what about this story of David and Goliath and the Philistines and Saul and Israel and God startled you most or surprised you or changed your perspective? Anything? No one was surprised? What I already said, the fact that family stuff, the fact that Brother was just sitting there being so mean and saying the absolute opposite of what David's heart really was, and the fact that David did there's even no response. He just blew it off. To me, I never noticed that. And that really, wow. Because nobody likes to be criticized, and nobody likes to be questioned of what your motive is. <coughs> So, I think so. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's kind of what Tony was saying earlier. He used all his experiences and hardship as a shepherd uh -huh. to prepare him for this moment, to prepare him to be king, to prepare him to be a man after God's own heart. Because he could have, kind of what Lynn is saying, just been defeated by all of these things. And instead, we see him having that right perspective and the right theology and the right identity. Yeah, he chose differently. Yes, he has the spirit upon him, but he still chose differently. We have the spirit upon us. We can choose differently. Yes, Lee? I just thought of that. Kind of, I thought of something else, too. The, he had to fight lions. He had to fight bears. How many of us go up against the lions instead of dealing with it and being thankful that we were able, that God gave us the strength to go through it? Go what? Stop right there and look at God as somebody horrible Who, who, their, their true identity, and yes, yeah, yeah. You know, the key, the key to me, the key word in all of this is was not only the theology, it's just this whole perspective, which is what I'm hearing you all say, is that that David could 
look out and see something that the Israelites were not seeing. And, and that, to me, is, if, well, let me just ask you this. I'll tell you what my takeaway is. That, what is your takeaway from this story? Because so often it's taught on kind of like a moralistic story to children. Be brave like David. Emulate him. Use him as your example. And there is a little bit of that. But how do I, how do, in what way do I emulate him or use him as my example? I, I, I look to the theology of who God is in my identity in him. And my takeaway from this is I was, I was thinking about as I was driving here. As I thought, and, and I knew this already, you all, I knew this already, but sometimes we have to be reminded of the simple truths, is to look out even on my own life at the difficulties and say, what, okay, this, this is happening, this is reality, but what's the bigger stage? What is the bigger stage? Because you know how usually every week I write up here God's redemptive story? That's why we're here. He is playing out his redemptive story from creation in Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation, the very last verse. We are players in it. It, it is still occurring. As long as we're still here until Jesus comes again, that redemptive story is still occurring. Now, the finality of it is the cross and Jesus, but it's still happening. People are still being redeemed. People are still coming to Jesus Christ. The kingdom is still expanding. So how can I... Take what I know about God and my identity and get a different perspective on what's going on in my life. That's where I take it home. Am I wrong? Yeah. I, I think a word in that is you trust. This, this trust in God, trusting mm -hmm. Him in this battle. You have to trust God. You have, it's, it's trusting God in our battles. In our battles, we have to trust Him. Yeah. That that's hard. Trust is yeah. hard. Very few people in the you know, when you're faced with something, reality, you just you just it yeah. takes over. But trusting him in these huge battles we all face is powerful. Mm -hmm. Trust. Mm -hmm. Trust God. You know, in the King James version of uh, Proverbs um, twenty three seven, it says, As a man thinketh in his heart so is he. And in the first words that you wrote in on here from Eugene Peterson, it's David entered the valley of Elah with God dominated, not a Goliath dominated imagination. Mm -hmm. So as we think it in our heart, so can we be when we belong to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Somebody else, a takeaway, and then we'll end early. Nancy, I don't think this is a takeaway, but I'm wondering, when God saw something, I mean, when did God see something special in David? Was he, I mean, wasn't he 16-year-old shepherd boy? Or when did God's spirit come on him? Uh, I don't know if, I don't even know how relevant that is, but I've just been sitting here wondering, because he killed the lion and the bear, he knew something was special. Uh, maybe not about him, but he must have. I don't know. I was just, I was just curious. Was he well, I would always ask a special young man, or only after God's spirit came on him? Or I don't know. And I don't know if it matters. Well, the question I would uh, rebut with that, or ask back, and I don't know because I can't answer it off the top of my head, is was, was there something special that God chose him, or God chose him, and that's what made him special? Right. Which comes first. Yes, because we know Abraham, there was nothing particularly unique about him. God even says, Israel, it's not because there's anything special about you that I chose you and put my love on you, it's just because I loved you. You know, in uh, Acts 13, 22, which you told us to look at, said, God said, David is the man after my own heart, for he will obey me. He will so obey me. He is. He said, that's peace. Mm -hmm. David is a man after God's own heart, and Jim just did a sermon about that a few weeks ago. And I don't remember every single point, but some of it is he obeys, he repented. He's a man who sins greatly. Lust after Bathsheba goes after her. 
Um, she gets her pregnant, and then to cover his tracks, brings Uriah home, has him killed, and not until he's confronted by Nathan is it revealed, does he really come to terms with the sin that he committed, but he, he has a repentant heart. And then what does this scene show about him? He, he is not going to let the name of God or the things of God be dishonored or shamed. He will stand for that if he has to stand alone. He will do it. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. Any other thoughts or comments? It's, an inter- it's interesting, isn't it? It's really, really interesting. Okay. Well, we'll end early. You're welcome to stay around and visit if you want. We will end early. Thank you all.